Good morning, everyone. My name is Naya Swami Diksha. This is Naya Swami Gandev. We're happy to share service with you today. I'd like to welcome all those who are here for the first time, those who are taking a program, The Expanding Light, those who are watching us online. I'd like to start by reading from Rays of the One Light, weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita for Swami, by Swami Kriyananda. The topic of this week is ego, friend or foe. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Jesus Christ begins his Beatitudes with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit in such a way as to merit the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean to be poor-spirited. Rather, it means to see oneself as owning nothing since all belongs to God, for all is a manifestation of his consciousness. St. John of the Cross wrote, If you would own everything, seek to own nothing. That which the ego relinquishes, offering it up to soul consciousness, is reclaimed forever in cosmic consciousness. Nothing is ever lost. Paramahansa Yogananda tells the story in Autobiography of a Yogi of the levitating saint, Baduri Mahashaya. Master, said a disciple of this saint once, ardently, you are wonderful. You have renounced riches and comforts to seek God and to teach us wisdom. It was well known that Paduri Mahashaya had forsaken great family wealth in his early childhood when single-mindedly he entered the yogic path. You are reversing the case, the saint's face held mild rebuke. I have left a few paltry rupees, a few petty pleasures for a cosmic empire of endless bliss. How then have I denied myself anything? I know the joy of sharing the treasure. Is that a sacrifice? The short-sighted worldly folk are verily the real renunciates. They relinquish an unparalleled divine possession for a poor handful of earthly toys. The Bhagavad Gita in the third chapter states, All things are everywhere by nature wrought, in interaction of the qualities. The fool, cheated by self, thinks, This I did, and that I wrought. But ah, thou strong-armed prince, a better lessened mind, knowing the play of visible things, within the world of sense, and how the qualities must qualify 
standeth aloof, even from his acts. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. you from Whispers from Eternity, Paramahansa Gunanda's book of poems and prayers. Some of these are quite short. Um, this one isn't. <laughs> and it has wonderful imagery in it. And just, just let yourself kind of flow with Yogananda's words here. Get into the vibration of this reading. It's titled, Let Me Feel That Thou and I Art One. When the sparks of cosmic creation flew from under thy crucible of love, I danced with all the lights that heralded the coming of myriad worlds. I'm a little spark of thy joyous cosmic fire. O thou son of life, as thy nectar poured into the little cups of human minds filled with molten liquid of vital sparks, they thought to contain thy golden infinity in the smallness of their human feelings. In each fragile, undulating mirror of human flesh, I see reflected thy restless dance of omnipresent power. In the lambent waters of life, I behold thy ever-steady, almighty life. Teach me by the power of concentration to still the restless storms of desire raging on the lake of my mind. Stilling those waters, I lovingly behold thy unruffled face of cosmic stillness. Cause the little wave of my life to subside, that thy consciousness in me spread out to become thine own vastness. Let me feel my heart throbbing in thy breast, my feet moving with thy energy, thy breath breathing through mine, thy energy actively moving my arms, thy thoughts weaving all the thoughts in my brain. When I cry, thy soft sigh within me wakens me to thy joy. In thy playfulness, little bubble visions of thy creation float dancingly in the chamber of my dreams, which manifest in my sleep of delusion. Thy meteoric will courses through the skies of my own willpower. Make me feel that it is thou who art I. Oh, make me thyself, that I behold my little bubble of self ever floating in thee. So our topic this morning is ego, friend, or foe? It's a good question. In fact, but a previous question to that is what exactly is ego? We all know what egotism is, and it provides some fertile soil for humor. Um, in July, we had the, the premiere of the Ananda movie, the Finding Happiness movie, and that evening after the premiere, the, uh, the crew, many of the crew and the star, uh, a couple of the stars, uh, gave little presentations at uh, just what their thoughts were on having been involved in it. And this, was, this crew was a real Hollywood crew. 
Um, and one of the crew got up and, and, and said, it was so refreshing to be with a bunch of people where everybody doesn't talk about themselves. <laughs> the, uh, it, it has been well said that uh, an egotist is someone who has the audacity to be thinking about himself instead of you. And <laughs> I found, a, I found a, real, a real choice one by Winston Churchill said, well, we're all worms, but I believe I'm a glowworm. <laughs> and then I, I hit upon another wonderful quotation from a, a poet by the name of W.H. Auden. And, uh, and he said, no poet or novelist wishes that he were the only one who ever lived, but most of them wish they were the only one alive. And quite a number believe that their wish has been granted. <laughs> but that's egotism, which is an inflated sense of our importance, inflated sense of, of who we are. But egoism, or ego in the, in the yogic sense, is really just an, an exaggerated sense of self in any direction, whether inflated, deflated, or simply fixated. You know, it's just that, that concentration in, on, on our human reality, really. And it's like it draws a little, a little circle around us saying, I'm this, I am this big, and no bigger. When in fact, the whole aim of the spiritual life is not to destroy that sense of who we are, but to expand that sense of who we are to infinity, if that's... If that's our ultimate reality, which all the masters say that it is, the ego is not something, I mean, ego is just our sense of identity. It's not something to be stamped out, but something to be expanded in a, in a healthy sense. You know, some, as many of you know, I'm very much involved with Ananda Yoga. And in the, um, in the beginning, when Swami kind of, Swami Kriyananda fashioned Ananda Yoga into a coherent system of practice. He gave it, uh, he gave each asana, or each of a number of asanas, 30-some asanas, uh, its own affirmation intended to, to help us to enter the state of mind that the bodily position promotes inside. But some years ago, I, I got to thinking, gosh, it would be nice if that universe of asanas that had affirmations associated with them could be expanded a little bit. And I asked him if he would give affirmations to a number of additional asanas. And he did as he had done before. He meditated on them and tried to, tried to feel what their, what their natural effect on consciousness really is and develop an affirmation to amplify that effect. And he, he came back with these affirmations. And uh, one of them sort of I found to be a little of a sticking point. Uh, it was the affirmation for Tadasana, which is the simple standing pose. And I found it to be a sticking point. Uh, I sort of liked the idea it expressed, but not everyone else did. Uh, the affirmation was, I stand ready to obey thy least command. And I sort of let it kind of 
play for a while with other people and, and other teachers and just to kind of see what people thought about it and what a number of people thought about it was what I suspected they might think about it, which was that it was asking too much. <laughs> uh, it really, I mean, it, it gets you right where you live. I stand ready to obey thy least command. Oh, I don't know. You know it's, it's, it's all, some of your commands I'll obey. And, and so I, I conveyed that to Swami that there were some uh, people who felt a little resistance to that affirmation. And, and he said, well, what resists? The ego. The very thing they're trying to get rid of. And I thought, but didn't say, uh, I'm not sure how many Hatha yogis really are looking to get rid of the ego these, these days. Uh, but I didn't, you know, I didn't go into it. I was point well taken. And it was really very much the way he lived his life. He said that there are, there are two things I will never do. I will never pray for myself. And I will never defend myself. He said, because what would I be defending? You know, I'd be defending the ego, the very thing I am trying to get rid of. And it's really, it's, so, it's a natural thing for so many of us to want to defend the ego, to, to want to, to paint a little different picture than we think that other people are seeing, when in fact they're probably the ones who are seeing it the most clearly, and we're the ones who are trying to obscure the little picture because we're not looking as good as we would like to look. And this is something that all of us get to deal with from time to time, that, that sense of, of wanting to protect uh, other people's opinion of us, basically, uh, so that we will feel better about ourselves rather than Realizing those very moments are the ones that are golden opportunities for us to expand our sense of who we are, for us to, to let go of what we've been clinging to, of the identity, of the wanting to always be right, or whatever it is that we, that we cling to. This is, this is, this is our ego. And, and yet, it isn't always the enemy. You know, it is the enemy when we cling to it, but there's the other part of the ego, that part of the ego that says, I want to grow spiritually, not realizing what's in store for it uh, down the road when ultimately that limited sense of identity has to disappear. But it does. It does have that desire. I want to grow spiritually. I want God. I will do whatever it takes. And that is so it's not just okay, that is so crucial that the ego will stand up and do that. You know, in the background there's that, that soul identity sort of leaking through to, to the extent that the ego is actually willing to do that, as I said, not knowing what comes down the road. But really, it is, it's that wanting to that comes from ego and it is so valuable to us. Swami had said that we are defined not by what we've done or can do. We're defined by our aspirations. And that's a really liberating thought because how much have we done just in this life 
not to mention all that's gone before, who knows how many lifetimes, that we would like not to be defined by. Right? That, or how many of our shortcomings, our inabilities, would we not like to be defined by. He said, we're, we're defined by our aspirations. Because it's those aspirations that have nothing to do with our human reality is not have nothing to do with our personality, with our with our body. You can understand that's what the ego is. The ego is just the soul. It's not different from the soul. It's the soul in the state of identifying with the body and all that goes along with it, the personality and our likes and dislikes and just all the thoughts of who we are. I'm a I'm a teacher, I'm a parent, I'm a singer, I'm an engineer. Uh, all those things, that is, as, you, as Swami would put it, we're a little bundle of self-definitions and that our job is to, to really break open or break out of that bundle of, of self-definition. And there's, yet there's this little piece of us, and sometimes it's not such a little piece inside of us, that doesn't want to let go of all that, that thinks that it, you know, there's something about me that's kind of special, you know, it's, it's kind of kind of precious. Even, even when we really get down on ourselves and we think we're really blowing it and all that, there's this little part of it that says, yeah, but, you know, it would, there's something about me that it would be a, a pity if the world didn't have it, you know? <laughs> and it's just a, it's just a natural, a natural thing. In fact, one of Yogananda's highly advanced disciples, uh, Dr. Lewis, once asked Yogananda, he said, when I, when I reach final liberation and I'm done with this whole show, is it going to be like I just never existed? It would be too bad. <laughs> and I think, you know, all of us, all of us feel that way. And, and Yogananda said, no, no said, you continue to exist as a memory. Now, I don't know if a memory is enough. <laughs> but what he meant was that it is a memory that can be reanimated at any time. This is what happens with the, you know, the, the avatars. They get, they get free. They get reach final liberation and God, complete emergence in God. But they can they can be crystallized even back into physical form by the devotion of human beings. That memory is not just a, a thought, but it is something that can be reanimated, can be brought back. And Dr. Lewis was very reassured by that, that, that whatever it was, that specialness, that preciousness inside wasn't going to be lost. And, you know, it's... it's it's okay. You know, we're all working on expanding that. But there's another element of ego that also enters the mix. And that is the sense of I am the doer. That that which sort of happens through me happens because of me, happens because I am taking care of it. That's what uh, the... Gita reading, the Gita quotation this week was all about. Now, if you're 
I sort of realized, looking at that quotation, those two verses from the Gita, sort of like, if you're to understand poetry, and that, that translation of the Bhagavad Gita is written in very poetic form, the Gita itself is a poem. But when things get really poetic, you sort of want to be in a poetic frame of mind in order to understand them. And uh, so put yourself in the poetic frame of mind for a moment. And I want to read those verses again because they, they go by fast. All things are everywhere by nature wrought in, inter in interaction of the qualities. The fool, cheated by self, thinks this I did and that I wrought. But ah, thou strong-armed prince, a better lesson mind, knowing the play of visible things within the world of sense and how the qualities must qualify, standeth aloof even from his act. Well, as I said, it helps to be in a very poetic state of mind. But what it's saying is that we don't do anything. It is only the qualities or the, the gunas that do it. I was uh, brought to mind another quotation, speaking of being in a poetic state of mind, quotation by that same author, Ovidin, said that uh, no good opera plot can be sensible. Because people don't sing when they're feeling sensible. <laughs> Ponder that, singers. <laughs> uh, but the gunas, these three qualities of, of nature, is what, is what sort of God put in charge of running this universe. There's the, I'm not going to give a class on the gunas here, but just to, to mention the three qualities, sattva guna, the elevating quality, the uplifting quality. There's tamaguna, which is the, the contracting quality. Okay? Sattva expands, uplifts. Sattva, or tamas, contracts, squeezes us down. And then in between the two, rajas, the activating quality, which, which enlivens both. And everything in this world, I think of it kind of a flow of these different currents. And everything, whether it's a, a thing, an object, or a person or a thought or a feeling, that everything is a, is a mixture of those three qualities which God invented, God created, and that those qualities are what are doing everything. Over and over in the Gita, Krishna, which is a conversation between Krishna and his disciple Arjuna, Krishna says to Arjuna, you don't do anything. Now, you are not the doer in anything that happens through you. you know, it is my nature that manifests through you. It is the qualities that manifest through you. That's all that's happening here. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of reminded of a far side cartoon. Uh, of, uh, you're sort of seeing this cartoon through the, the gun sight of a hunter. And there are two moose uh, standing in the aim of that hunter. And uh, you see, sort of see the crosshairs of the gun sight on, on the cartoon. And one of the, one of the moose is this moose, mooses, moose, uh, is, uh, is looking, at, looking at the hunter smiling and saying, <laughs> and his buddy right next to him. And, and you know, that's... Uh, 
that's sort of like us when we blow it. You know, it's easy to take, it's easy to uh, give credit. When we do something good, give credit to God. It's not that hard. It's a little stickier when we, when we blow it because that tends to, we want to hold those really close to us. I mean, how could God possibly do that? You know, I, I must have, I really messed up. God didn't have anything to do with it. And Yogananda said, no, no, blame God for that. And I, I remember recently I, I uh, mentioned that, you know, that you know, in a, one of the yoga teacher training courses, I, I, I said, yeah, just blame God. God is the doer in everything. And, and one of the students said, that's a real slippery slope. <laughs> but but I, I just sort of have that that image of you know here you're in the crosshairs of somebody you just you just blew it just sort of thing <laughs> and that and that God's up there pointing to the gunas saying <laughs> you know, like nobody's taking responsibility for that but why would that be a good thing for us to do? Blame God? God is the doer. God blew it like that. The way Kriyananda put it, he said, well, when we, when, we, when we blow it, we do something wrong, we naturally feel a sense of responsibility. You know, a sense of guilt for it. It makes us identify with it. It, just, it gets incorporated as part of as the ego, as part of who we think we are. And if we can just shift the blame, you know how that good that feels to shift the blame, you know, <laughs> to get yourself off the hook. Um, you don't feel so identified with it. And why would God like that? Because God wants us to get out of identification with that human self. So he said, yeah, God likes that. Go ahead and blame God, but then we have to keep a real careful eye that God doesn't blow it again. Of course, uh, we don't get off the hook totally. We have a little responsibility for marshalling our forces to keep things going in the right direction. But whatever we can do to get out of that sense of smallness, to get out of that sense of, of identification with what, it, what we do, what we are, what we've done, that starts to make us free. And then when the ego can work in that way, the ego is really, really being a friend for us. And we come back to that, what Swami said, you know, we are defined by our aspirations. But, but aspirations, we have to take that in the right sense too. It's not just this nice mental thought of what I'd like to be, what I'd like to attain it's also behind that needs to be the desire to attain it. Enough desire that we start to put out some energy in that direction. And it's such a beautiful thing because we don't need to understand what it is. I mean, if we're talking about finding God, good thing we don't need to understand what it is because we can't understand what God is, not with our mind anyway. We don't have to understand it. All we need to know is what direction it lies in and what we can do to begin to move in that direction. That's the whole of the spiritual life. As Sister Ganamata, one of Ivananda's most advanced disciples, has said, keep your eye on the goal ever shining before you. 
know, that's just what it's all about. But not just keeping your eye on it, but also I'd say keep your heart on the goal, ever shining before you. Because the heart is the center of that longing, the center of what in us is looking for that ultimate fulfillment. That's devotion. You know, devotion is, is just propelling yourself in any way you possibly can toward your aspiration. And for some people, it fits what you might call a stereotype of devotion, you know, very, very outwardly devotional. For other people, it's invisible devotion. And you can't, another person can't see it, but it's there because that person is just making every possible effort to move in the direction of his or her aspiration. This is, this is devotion. This is something that everybody needs, no matter what path they're on. That desire to move forward. And basically, it's a desire to get out of the sense of ego limitation, to get out of the sense of smallness and just move toward being what we really are. But you know, sometimes that fire in the heart ain't burning too bright. You know, it's, it's sort of smoldering ashes that we're not feeling that call, we're not feeling that drive, we're not feeling that willingness to do whatever it takes. You know, it, it comes and it goes and it comes and it goes. And the question becomes, so, anything I can do then? And I'd just like to close with the answer is, yes, there is something we can do then. And Sister Ganamata had it. I'd like to read to you a letter she wrote to someone. And I think what that someone said in his or her letter, it will become clear by her response. Dear blank, when devotion fails to support us, or when, like you, we think we have none, then duty must step into the breach. The more opportunity I have to study the lives of those who are practicing meditation, the more I'm convinced that hand in hand with it should go the practice of the good old-fashioned virtues. I've been told that meditation itself is enough, but I have no evidence that this is so. And our Param Guru, Swami Sri Yukteswarji, did not so hold. For to his disciples, the group of boys whom he was training in the best methods of meditation, he said, learn to behave. What does good behavior consist of? In the careful, watchful regulation of our daily conduct to each other, when we do not feel like it. For of course, if one feels like it, such right conduct becomes natural and automatic. Since we are human beings and not machines, it becomes necessary for us to be vigilant in the exercise of self-control. It can all be put into a few words. We must do what we know to be right, whether we feel like it or not. You have not been doing this. You have simply not been behaving, and I know why. You've been engaged day and night in the thought of yourself. Because of this, a great chance to serve Paramahansaji, 
a great chance to cement the bond between you and the rest of your group by unselfishly helping them at a time when they needed you has passed you by. We have fought a good fight, brave Curion, but you were not here, said a French king once to a subject who stayed away when he was needed. Let the little self whine, if it will. Turn your back on it. Concentrate on your behavior. You asked me what we could do if we had no devotion. I have told you. With love and God and Guruji, sister. <laughs>